Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like more information about our vision, if you'd like to get connected to biblical community through groups, or if you'd like to find an opportunity to serve the body of Christ with us, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word HUBCITY to 97000, and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Our summer schedule is out, and you can find it on social media, our website, and the Church Center app. The first event is going to be our May Play Day on Sunday, May 28th. In lieu of community groups, we will have a fellowship in our backyard with burgers, birthday cake, and a giant water slide to celebrate our church's 15-year anniversary. We hope you'll make plans to join us for that, as well as all of the fun and fellowship and outreach opportunities we'll have this summer. As we get ready to enter into corporate worship, if you're worried about having little ones in service with you, we want you to be at ease. We love kids and have a lot of them here. There are coloring sheets in the back of the sanctuary. Our kids ministry is always available to you. And we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. All right. Well, hey, good morning again, guys. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Hub City Church. And uh, once again, on behalf of our church family, we're so glad you're here to worship Jesus with us. Um, just a few things before we get to the word. The first thing is a reminder. Um, as a church, <clears throat> we have a five-year goal. Well, we have several five-year goals. We have a, one of our five-year goals is to be sharing the gospel and inviting friends to church who need to hear the gospel. Um, and we want to be doing that in five years um, a thousand times or more. And so uh, in order to track that, every time we share the gospel or invite someone to church to hear the gospel, uh, we throw a uh, green ping pong ball in that tube back there that you can see in the middle uh, in the back. And that tube holds 200 uh, ping pong balls, and we've been at it now for a little over three months uh, and if you can see there, we're like really close. I can't, the lights are bright, but we're like really close to the top there, um, which tells me, uh, I'm not a mathematician, but it tells me um, it, if we keep our current pace, uh, we might need a new goal sooner than uh, five years. But that's, that's, yeah, that's a good thing, right? So I think there's like 10 ping pong balls back there. So if you want to be someone to throw one in, you haven't done that yet, you're going to need to share the gospel this week. But um, anyway... We'll dump that all out, and we'll start over again when we, when we do it. But uh, in case you don't get why we would want to track that, um, Jesus has given us a clear mission as his church. That mission is to be disciples who make more disciples. The way you make disciples is you start with actually um, sharing the gospel with people. Um, you start with talking to people about Jesus. There's more to it than that, teaching them to walk in a, a manner worthy of the gospel and all. But um, it can never be less, can never be less than sharing the explicit message 
of Christ crucified for the atonement of their sins and the free gift of salvation and eternal life by grace through faith alone. Anyway, um, as cheesy as it may sound to have a, an evangelism tube, uh, we have one for a serious reason because we want to be able to see and assess our faithfulness to the main thing as a church family because um, just being real, um, if we're not being obedient to Jesus and always uh, striving to be a church that's pleasing to Jesus, um, then what are we doing here, right? What are we doing? Right? You, you don't need a, a $200,000 plus a year budget just to have some potlucks with your friends, right? You can do that outside of this. And so the reason that we have a building and the staff we have and the resources and ministries and the fellowships and the outreaches, everything we have, it's all about what that tube represents, which is why it's at the center. We don't ever want to get distracted and forget what it is that we are actually here to do, to share the good news of Jesus with more and more people in hopes that they too would join us in the family of God and Christ. Okay? So, um, awesome work so far, guys, on that tube. Let's fill that thing up and then let's do it again, right? Because until Jesus comes to uh, crack open the sky and take us home, um, we got to keep getting the gospel out. Amen? Okay. Um, well, hey, um, <clears throat> a couple more things. Summer schedule is up, um, as my bride said in the welcome video. And so the first thing is our May play day. I shared that with you last week, but uh, we have now been a church for 15 years. And so that's a big deal. Yeah. I figured what better way to celebrate that than with uh, burgers, birthday cake, and a big old water slide out back. So um, David Snelling, the pastoral assistant who just did the, um, the offering, he wanted you to know he has reserved the water slide, okay? It's like <laughs> the deposit's down. Like we have it. It's going to be here, and it's big, and it's cool. So make sure you make plans um, on the 28th to come join us for that celebration, okay? Um, the second thing is kind of a surprise, unlisted event, uh, ladies' brunch. So that's going to be Saturday, May 20th at 10 a.m. I guess the ladies heard uh, what a great time the men had eating bacon and pancakes a few weeks ago for the men's breakfast. So they wanted in on that, and uh, I can't say I blame them. So if you're a lady and you love Jesus and brunch, then be there. I'm sure it's going to be a, a fun time. Okay, well, it's our habit on most Sundays of the year to be teaching through a specific book of the Bible and to teach through it from start to finish. We believe that kind of expositional preaching is one of the best ways to teach the Bible because um, nothing against a kind of a verse of the day type study where you jump around in scripture, but each book of the Bible was meant to be read and understood as a collective unit. And specifically when it comes to the New Testament epistles or letters, um, they were written by an apostle to a specific church in a specific region. All that to say, um, in reading the scriptures, context matters. I don't uh, get to just take the Bible and kind of splice it all up, any sections of verses that I want, and say whatever I want to say up here, which can be done, and unfortunately is done in some churches. That's called uh, eisegesis. It's the practice where a teacher imposes their own meaning onto the text of the Bible instead of exegesis, which is working to draw out 
the objective meaning that the Bible already has. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Uh, So today we're embarking in one of the most beautiful and impactful books of the entire Bible, which is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, One Bible teacher said that Ephesians is the crown of Paul's writings, that it, and that it functions kind of like a, like a commentary on the rest of his letters. So there, there are critical Christian doctrines articulated within Ephesians that we need in order to have a full and robust grasp of the rest of the New Testament and our faith in Jesus. That said, many have also <laughs> mentioned that there are several notably intricate and hard-to-understand sections of Ephesians with really long and winding sentences. Even the Apostle Peter uh, recognizes this in 2 Peter 3, where he says, some of the writings of Paul are hard to understand, right? Good luck. Um, Anyway, Ephesians definitely fits the bill for that assessment, but my hope is to do my best not to leave you confused but blessed Uh, by what it has for us. As I said, there's just so much um, beautiful gospel truth in this letter to be wrung out and savored. And so with that, um, let's do that. Let's let's pray and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, you are good. You are great and glorious and you are worthy of all of our worship. So we we first simply continue to do that. Now we praise you for this day and the many blessings of life you've so sweetly poured out to us. But most of all, God, we praise and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We confess it's it's only by his perfect life, his atoning death on the cross, where he poured out his blood to cover our sin and his triumphant resurrection. It's only through that gospel that we now have unhindered access to you as your children. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word that you have preserved for us through the ages that we might know all of the amazing things that you have done, but more amazingly, that we might actually know you by faith through your Holy Spirit who you pour out to everyone who determines by grace to receive Jesus both as their Savior and obey him as their Lord. And now, God, as always, as we enter into another book of the Bible, would you be with us? Would, through Ephesians, through the exposition and proclamation of the glorious truths in Ephesians, would you grow us? For some, God, would you open their spiritual eyes and their hearts to you for the first time and bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life? For others, would you show them what you've clearly revealed for, the, for their life, God, your, your will for their life? For some, would you open their eyes to how you've designed for their, their family to function healthily? For others, would you reveal that you have a, a clear design for how your church is to function? Lord, all of these things and more you've seen fit to articulate in Ephesians. And so I pray that as we read it together, it would, as you promise, not return to you void, but do all that you send it out to do. Would you help me to be a faithful messenger, Lord? Nothing more. Though I'm one of the men presenting your word, would it be evident that it is not about me, but all about you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, hey, on the front end of 
teaching through any book of the Bible, we always uh, want to begin by giving a word of historical setting, just so you kind of understand. Um, this is a real person writing to real people in a real place in a real time. And so Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, planted the church in Ephesus. It was the leading city in the wealthiest region of the Roman Empire. It was a port city off of the Aegean Sea, and it had a very kind of cosmopolitan feel, lots of people from different cultures and lots of you know, economic hustle and bustle. It was an area with a really strong Jewish presence, but um, as the seat of the Roman Empire in that region, it also had a strong Gentile Greek population. And so with that, there was a lot of religious activity going on, but by no means was it all Christian. The majority of it would have been pagan and pluralistic. The Greek god Artemis was one of the main ones in Ephesus. Uh, we find out in Acts that there actually began to be some tension as Paul and the church are winning converts right to Christianity. All the, all the craftsmen who were employed and sustained financially by the creation of household idols, they were unhappy that the gospel was causing them to lose business. Okay, So there was some tension in that culture with Christianity. But um, anyway, Paul spends three years in Ephesus, Ephesus and then he leaves, uh, and he never goes back that we know of. And this letter was likely written about five to seven years later. For that reason, it's frequently said to be a very general letter because Paul doesn't add in a lot of personal details about um, believers in Ephesus. Right? He normally does that in his letters, but with the letter to Ephesians, he, he really doesn't. And it's likely because you know, he'd been away so long, he didn't know them as well as he did uh, when he was there, and he knew there were likely a lot of new Christians that he was addressing with this letter. Uh, and in that sense, it makes Ephesians pretty simple to apply, since there are not a lot of unique interpretive issues uh, with things that were only happening in the occasion of this letter. It's pretty straightforward, is what I'm saying, okay? Uh, all that said, we've titled our series through Ephesians, Life Together in Christ, because the, the first half of the letter is a lengthy uh, articulation of gospel doctrine, and then the second half of the letter is mostly application of that doctrine for individuals, for families, uh, and churches who are doing life together in Christ. Okay, so uh, with that, let's go ahead and we're going to read, starting in uh, verse 1, we're going to read the first two verses of Paul's greeting, and we're going to think about what it means for us today and what it has to do with the rest of the letter. So Ephesians Ephesians 1 starts this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, stop there. You might be thinking... <laughs> When I read the Bible, this is usually the part of the New Testament letters that I just breeze past, right? Uh, how are you going to preach an entire sermon on this, Tad? Well, um, yeah, let me, let me tell you that. Um, what is there to be understood here other than Paul is the author, which I already told you that, right? Um, the audience is the Ephesian church, and then you know, some of these little like, Christianese pleasantries, right? Maybe that's what you think. And to that, I, I would say that if we slow down... What we see is that Paul is actually tipping us off 
to some pretty big themes that are going to run through the entirety of the letter. And so it's going to be important for us to think about those now on the front end in our way in. And so in this first sentence, Paul makes his first reference to a, a massive doctrine that he's going to go on to mention six more times in the letter, four of which are in the opening chapter, and that is the doctrine of the will of God. Okay, It's clearly so important to Paul, he feels the need to wrap it into the introduction <clears throat> of who he is, right? He says he's an apostle, that is, an authoritative representative for the Lord Jesus. The apostles are the designated leaders of the first century church who were tasked with writing the new covenant scriptures after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. So when an apostle would write to a church, it was Holy Spirit inspired and thus to be treated as though it had come from Christ himself. Okay? Um, that carried a lot of weight. And so um, the question has got to be asked, why would Paul include an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Well, next week we're going to see what, he, what he's alluding to, alluding to the fact that the will of God is in, uh, integral to the unfolding of the events of the gospel message. But in this first phrase, out the gate, here's a principle we can draw out. Right? 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Right? So here's the principle. Okay? God has a specific will. God has a specific will for his specific people and specific places for a specific purpose. And I, what I want to do is break those pieces up and discuss the importance of us understanding each one. So um, let, let's talk about this first piece first, that God has a specific will. Here's just a little piece of my testimony. I grew up as a nominal Christian. By that, I mean that I considered myself a Christian, but the truth was um, I was a Christian in name only. That's what I mean by nominal, in name only. There was nothing discernible about my life that could have been pointed to that was distinctively about Christ and his teachings. I attended church sporadically with my family, uh, but I certainly was not listening super closely uh, much less applying anything that was taught. Okay, full transparency. Um, I, I just figured, you know, I'm I'm a Christian because that's that's what most good people say they are, right? And the extent of my grasp on my own worldview was that I should be a nice guy. That's what I thought being a Christian was. Whatever that means, polite, easygoing, and try not to do anything wrong to anyone, etc. Well. Um, in, God, in God's kind providence, I, I had at least one friend who really was a Christian. Okay? And that friend sent me uh, one day a sermon to listen to, which was not something that I'd ever imagined doing in my life. Listening to a sermon, like, what? <laughs> um, but nevertheless, this, this friend sent me a sermon. And um, I was in my room alone listening to this sermon one night, and the pastor was exposing this text in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
But the one who does the what? Will of my Father who is in heaven. Right. And for the very first time, about 20 years old, living a, you know, I mean, an okay, but, you know, totally self-centered life, I heard something from the Bible that stopped me in my tracks and made me think, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. Because I, I, I believe there was a God, right? I believe there was a God. I would have been willing to say that Jesus was probably his son, though I had no idea what that meant if you would have pressed me. But because my heart had gone up to that point in life, totally unexamined, when I heard Jesus say that the way to heaven for me was tied to my doing of the will of God, it's like my eyes began to be open for the first time to the fact that God was a real personal being who apparently had specific desires and expectations of me. And here was the part that really messed me up. I didn't know what they were. I had no idea what they were. Okay. Um, I didn't know what the will of God was. That much became clear to me that night. And so, man, I, I had to own up to the fact that regardless of how I had previously identified and labeled myself to that juncture, I was not really a Christian. I was not really a Christian. That was the grace of God that woke me up that night. I, I didn't know what the will of God was, and I didn't know how big and important of a doctrine it was. You see, the, the doctrine of God's will is not just talked about in Matthew 7, in this one passage. It's, it's, it's in a, a lot of passages. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus goes on to instruct his disciples, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Romans 12.2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Peter 4, he says, We are to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 John 2, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, the will of God, I've come to learn, is a complex doctrine with a lot of considerations, okay? But let me just briefly explain a few of them, and we'll talk more about them uh, later in Ephesians, because Paul's going to go on to talk more about the will of God. But first of all, there's an important um, division in God's will. I didn't put this in your notes, but if you want to jot this down, it might be helpful, okay? Um, God has a secret will, and he has a revealed will, okay? God has a secret will and a revealed will. Other terms for those are his will of decree, and his will of command, respectively. Okay, Secret will, will of decree, will of command, that's his revealed will. In other words, because God is sovereign or all-powerful and in control, nothing happens in human history 
okay, that happens apart from God's willing it. This is the will of decree or God's secret will that we don't know until it happens, okay? But his revealed will or his will of command is just all the things in Scripture that God has made plain for us to know that he desires of us, all right? We, we talked about that last week when we discussed uh, decision-making. For instance, if you, if you are, let's just say you're unmarried, okay, but you desire a spouse, God doesn't tell you, um, it's not like a phone book or an almanac, you know, you can't flip your Bible open to a page where it's like, okay, uh, who am I supposed to marry? Where's the, where's the name there, right? There's no index in your Bible for who your spouse is going to be. That's God's secret will. It's yet to be revealed, right, if you're unmarried. But he has a revealed will, right, Okay. And he has revealed to you, though maybe not who your exact spouse will be, he has revealed the character that your spouse should have, right? He has told you exactly what your spouse ought to be like, okay? That said, God also has has a general will and he has a specific will. God's general will is simply to be glorified by all of creation in and through the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom he's reconciling all things back to himself, most importantly, his people, right? But here's the thing. You specifically are a part of that. You specifically are a part of that. God doesn't just have a specific will. His word tells us that he has a specific will for his specific people, okay, for his specific people. Friend, can I just reason with you for a minute? I don't know why you think you're here today. I don't know why you think you're here today. A lot of people just go to church services in the South for really superficial reasons, okay? Um, one, one really prominent reason is because it's been culturally instilled in them that they should, by parents or grandparents or whoever. But, but why they should is, you, is a lot of times pretty ambiguous for people. It's unclear in their minds. They just know they should go to church. They don't really know why they should. Here's a second reason a lot of people go to church, to feel good, to feel good. Either the attendance itself makes them feel like a good person, or they're looking to hear a pastor tell them something sweet that's going to make them feel warm and fuzzy inside, right? But let me just put my cards on the table, okay? I'm not doing what I'm doing primarily to make you feel good, okay? That's not my primary goal, all right? Based on the Bible, you're like... What? Okay, hold on, hold on. Okay, based on the Bible, I believe the the primary function of a pastor like me has to do, not mainly with making you feel good, but helping you to know God. Helping you to know God, right? Because I, I think that for someone to have the realization that God is not an impersonal force or some you know, distant old man with a white beard in the heavens who just wants us to be nicer to each other, but rather that he is an all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly just, and yet perfectly gracious and kind 
father who wants individual people to come to know him intimately, to have a relationship with him, to talk to him, and to obey him and see that his ways for them are good and right. And that the way he determined to show us all of that was by sending us his son, Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the the perfect reflection of himself. Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, right? Now, now something you're going to see about Jesus if if you read the Gospels is that he comes after individual people. Jesus comes after individual people, okay? And you need to know this, okay? This is not just for you to feel good. You need to know who God is. Jesus is God, and he comes after individual people. I've been watching this show. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called The Chosen, okay? Um, And it's it's meant to be a, a biblical depiction of the events that took place in the Gospels, and we've had a lot of friends tell us they liked it. And so uh, we've been watching it for ourselves to figure out what we think about it, okay? And I'm not going to give my full verdict here just yet. <clears throat> but here's one thing that I think could be helpful, okay? One thing that could be helpful about watching a show like that. Visualizing Jesus as a real person. Visualizing Jesus as a, as a real person. I think, David alluded to this in his offering talk, I think we are so prone to kind of conceptualize God, right? But God sent his son to us so that we would know that he is real and to know what he is really like. And one thing I really enjoyed about the show in the first episode, spoiler alert, not really because it's all in the Bible. Okay, anyway, well, (laughs) a lot of it's in the Bible. Okay, they take some liberty. But anyway, so um, one thing I really liked about the first episode is how Jesus pursues Mary Magdalene when she was possessed by demons. We find that out about Mary, okay? In the Bible, she's possessed by demons before she comes to Jesus. And there's a scene where he approaches her, and she doesn't know who he is yet. So um, she tries to get away from him, actually, first, um, because the, what they depict is like the demonic oppression in her is kind of chafing against his physical presence. And if you've read the Gospels, you know that happens. Okay, so... <clears throat> But as she's trying to get away from him, she's walking and he's pursuing. And he calls her by name, Mary, right? And she stops. She turns around. She says, who are you? And how do you know my name? And he quotes Isaiah 43, 1 verbatim. Thus says the Lord who created you, he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You're mine. 
right? And she just, you know, she like breaks down weeping, you know, and it's just like really impactful. But that season or that scene really captured, I think, how so many of Jesus' disciples begin coming to him, right? They realize these two powerful realities are, are simultaneously true about him, about Jesus, right? That he's God, right? They, they see the things he's doing, and they're like, he's God, and that he knows them. He knows them, right? Like, specifically, and he intended to call them specifically. And this is why, if you're still following along, okay, if you're tuning back in, this is why I think Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Because Jesus comes after Paul, too. Do you know that? <laughs> Jesus went after Paul in Acts 9. Paul's on his happy little way as a Pharisee to persecute Christians. And the resurrected Jesus temporarily blinds him and knocks him off his horse. He calls him by name, right? Paul's blind. Who are you, right? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and go into the city and I'll tell you what you're to do. I'll tell you my will, right? So Paul became an apostle, not because he just changed his mind about his entire faith of his own volition randomly, but because God had a will for Paul's life, specifically to use him for the mission of the gospel in a powerful way, right? Listen to how Paul articulates this in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says, But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. <clears throat> Man, I could say so many of those same things in my own salvation experience. When Jesus called me, right? When Jesus knocked me off my horse, metaphysically, or not, not metaphysically, metaphorically, sorry, a lot of words here. Maybe metaphysically, I don't know, somebody Google that and let me know. Anyway, <laughs> maybe it was the Holy Spirit, I don't know. So I was, I was living my life in ignorant unbelief thinking I was a Christian when I really wasn't. I really wasn't. And through the scriptures, Jesus made himself clear to me and called me to himself as a sinner who he desired to use for the calling and the redeeming of other sinners. 
As an example that others could look to as someone who God, not as a perfect example, as an example of someone who God was very patient with before opening my eyes to salvation and eternal life. I'm a Christian and a pastor today by the will of God. Not my will. My will didn't have anything like that written in it. By the will of God. I say all this because I I wonder if you have ever considered yourself in this way. Have you considered that God has a will for you in your life? Just like Mary, just like Paul, just like me, and just like countless others in Scripture, right, throughout church history and in this very church. I, I actually think that's one of the reasons that you're here today. So one of the reasons you're here today is to know that God has a specific will, even for you, whoever you are, even for you. A lot of people have hated on this verse through the years due to its being used out of context. I get it. But in Jeremiah 29, God speaks to his people who have gone into exile due to their own sin. And he explains that they're going to be there for a while but that just because they've entered into this season of his discipline, he has not forgotten them, and he still loves them. It's Jeremiah 29.11. He says, through the prophet Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. All the Reformed Baptists are really upset with me right now. But friend, please know this today. Please know this today. God knows you specifically. And he has a plan for you. He has a specific plan for you. A specific will for you. And even though there may be some pain and some difficulty involved due to your own sin and the brokenness of this world mingled into it, his plan for you is not evil. His plan for you is not evil. It's for your welfare. He wants to give you a future and a hope. That future and that hope are available only in Jesus. And I'll explain more how that how that is in a few minutes before we close. But first of all, I really like this quote by the late Chuck Swindoll. He said, your call will become clear as your mind is transformed by the reading of Scripture and the internal work of God's Spirit. The Lord never hides His will from us. In time, as you obey the call first to follow Jesus, your identity will unfold before you. The difficulty will lie in keeping other concerns from diverting your attention. I have found this to be true. God does not hide his will for us. He makes it abundantly clear in time for those who will listen by following Jesus and reading his word. The hard part is not usually knowing what the will of God is. It's staying in line with it once you start to understand what it is, because there are conflicting wills, right? Your own will, right? Your family's will for your life, 
The surrounding culture clearly has a, has a will for you as well. And so God has a specific will for his specific people. The question is just, will they follow it? Will we follow it? Will you follow it? Right? But along with the fact that God has a specific will for his specific people, that involves specific places. Maybe you're clear on God having a will for you, but you're like, what does Crestview have to do with that? (laughs) This feels like an unfortunate pit stop or something sometimes. But let me just tell you, friend, even in Crestview, God has a will for us. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. He says, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's Crestview. See it? Okay. Now fast forward. <laughs> now, now fast forward, right? You get to Revelation 7, verse 9, right? We're seeing the, the end of the age. And it's, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Right. If you go to Acts 18.10, Paul is in Corinth one night, and Jesus shows up to tell him something. He says, again, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For, get this, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. So so just like Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus to help them understand the will of God for them as individual believers, as family units, and as a collective church body... We too can read Ephesians and draw out the same things for ourselves as men and women and families of the Hub City Church. Okay, I'm really looking forward to getting into those aspects of God's will for us in the days ahead. But finally, God has a specific will for his specific people in specific places, all for a specific purpose. Their receipt of grace and peace in Christ. You see, those who are familiar with the New Testament letters may think, oh, well, you know, grace and peace, right? That's just like, that's just like the bible way of saying hello, right? Grace and peace, right? Um, but I don't think we should rush past and write it off like that. As we read through Ephesians, what we're going to see is that grace and peace are critical to what Paul has to say about God's will for them, Okay. First, Paul's going to go to great lengths to elaborate on the grace of God for us. I found it helpful to define grace side by side with mercy, at least when I'm teaching my, my kids, okay? So just maybe this is helpful to you. Grace, here's what grace is. Grace is good things that God does or gives to us that we don't deserve, Clear on that? That's grace. That's, grace is good things that God gives to you that you do not deserve. Mercy is when we deserve bad things 
but God determines not to give those things to us. Okay, got that? You see grace and mercy? Okay, so the epitome of God's grace or the good that he has determined to give to us in giving of his own son to us. We already discussed how God gave us Jesus to show us what he is like, but also he gave us Jesus in order to extend us the offer of eternal life. Okay. You see, in mercy, Jesus came and Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could. And then he died the death that we deserved in order to not give us judgment. Right? In order to not give us judgment, Jesus had to absorb our judgment himself. And he did that on the cross. Okay? So that all we have to do now is receive the grace of a totally reconciled and restored relationship with God. Okay, all we have to do to do that is place our faith, that is, place our trust in Jesus as our Savior, the only one who paid for and who can forgive all of our sin. Okay? That's the gospel, by the way. And so Paul is saying, literally, grace is, is coming to you, right? Grace is coming to you. The grace of the gospel is coming to you in this letter. Because in this letter, you're going to hear about how you can be in Christ, okay? And that grace becomes the pathway to true and lasting peace. Because when we have all of our sin past, present, and future, when we have all of our sin forgiven by Jesus, where we were alienated from God as his enemies, we become his children who are now at peace with him forever. And this gospel is central to the will of God for you and for us as Jesus' church together. That gospel of grace and peace, it becomes your hope and your motivation, your everything, and it also becomes our mission to take it to others. Okay, That's the will of God for you. That's the will of God that I didn't know about in Matthew 7, right? 13 years ago or however long ago that was, right? That's God's will for you, to believe the gospel be forgiven of your sin, have the hope of eternal life, begin abiding in Christ daily with your church family, and start walking in obedience to his good commands. That's God's will. So as we close, I just have a question for you to consider, like I did all those years ago. Are you seeking to be aligned with God's will for you? Are you seeking to be aligned with God's will for your life? Honestly, are you? For those who are, 
and as an act of faith have trusted in Jesus for salvation. In just a few moments, we're going to close by taking the Lord's Supper. This is a simple ordinance that we've been given by Christ himself to do regularly in the remembrance of his death. The remembrance of the blood that he shed for us as an act of his divine mercy to absorb the punishment that we deserved for our sin on the cross. The bread, right? This is communion, okay? The bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. And the juice represents his blood poured out to cover and atone for all of our sin. And so in this time, with sorrowful joy, we praise Christ for how he stood before the wrath of God as though he were sinful like us, that we might now and forever stand before God perfectly righteous and blameless like him. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Okay. So if you're walking in the will of God, you know that, then you are free to join us at the Lord's table. But for those who know today, in their heart of hearts, if they're being really honest, now I understand this is challenging. It can be challenging. But I would ask this of you. If you're being really honest, and you know that you haven't ever trusted Jesus, really, right? Like when you think of the will of God, that's ambiguous in your mind. It's, that's not something you've thought about walking in ever, okay? Man, maybe the, maybe the will of God has perhaps taken you by surprise this morning, like it did me. If that's you, please know there is absolutely no reason to be ashamed of that. No reason to be ashamed of that. But actually, if, if you want to trust Jesus and you want to align your life with the will of God in him, man, then we would love to celebrate that with you. We would love, love, love to celebrate that with you. And so if you like, you're welcome to come down. You don't have to do this, but if you want to, when others come forward to partake of the Lord's table, you can come down and we would love to pray with you. And then after the service sometime soon, we'd like to follow up with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus for real, right? Like to really seek the will of the Lord for your life. That's what we're here for, seriously. <clears throat> or last, last person I'm talking to here, for the Lord's Supper. Maybe you have already trusted in Christ and you desire to abide in the will of God for you in Christ. But maybe this morning as you're sitting here, you know, right? Because the Spirit's prompting you. There, there's something in your life that's off. It's not in line with the will of God for you. And you, you know that. Some, maybe there's some sin that you need to repent of. Are there some relationship in your life where man, reconciliation needs to happen? You too are you're free to abstain from the Lord's Supper and instead come for prayer. Our elders will be down front. We will be glad to pray for you for whatever, for whatever you need. Okay? This, this time of coming to the Lord's table, yes, for believers who are in good standing with the Lord, obviously to partake, but 
If that's not you, that's okay. Don't feel like you have to go with the current here. Don't feel like, because most people are going to get up and come take communion, that you have to do that too. It's okay. If you're like, I don't think I'm really a Christian. Or if I am, I, I, don't, I don't really know what that means. Listen, friend, don't come take communion. Don't come to the Lord's table. Come for prayer. Or, or, or if you don't want to do that, you want to be seen by everybody, come talk to me after the service. Or, or Pastor Jason or Pastor Tristan or, or any of our leaders. That's, it's okay. Communion is not just something that we do because everyone does it. Don't keep going in your life being ambiguous in your heart and mind about what a Christian really is and what the will of God really is for you. You can know it. You can really know it. And you can really know Jesus. And we'd love to walk with you through that. Okay. All right, none of that's in my notes, so I'm going to pray. And then we'll come to the Lord's table, maybe. Father, God, you are so incredibly good and so incredibly gracious. Thank you for revealing your will to us. God, there was nothing that we did, nothing that we earned, nothing that we merited, no reason, God, for you to knock us off our horse, knock us off whatever you knocked us off of, God, and to call us to yourself and to make your gospel abundantly clear to us. There's nothing we've done to earn that. It's by your grace alone. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for your gracious will that you have made clear to your people through faith in Jesus. And so now, God, I pray that during this time as we come forward to the, to the Lord's table as he has commanded us, God, that those who come would do so in a worthy way. God, I pray that those who, who come to this table today, that they would understand there's nothing magic about eating this little piece of plastic bread or whatever. There's nothing magic about that. There's nothing magic about this little juice cup. It's symbolic, Lord, of what you have done in the lives of those who you have called by name, those who you have redeemed by your blood, those you have saved from their sin. I pray that that would be what happens right now. And Father, I pray too, and this is hard, Lord, in our culture, but your arm is not too short for this. I pray that if there are men and women in this room who may have been coming to church for a long time, even, who realize this morning that they're where I was, and they don't really know your will, and they don't really know your son. God, I pray for those people this morning that they wouldn't be afraid to come and talk to me or any of our pastors or any of our leaders about what it really means to follow Jesus and to walk in step with your will, God. We love you, Lord. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for all that's to come in this beautiful, beautiful epistle. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.